Let's just pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you that we can celebrate all your goodness and all your blessings to us over this last year. And as we look forward into a new year, we pray your blessing on us in the future. We thank you that we can worship you together as we've done this morning. Lord, help us now as we look at your word together, as we look at what is a difficult uh, passage of your Bible to understand. We pray that you would help us, uh, humble us, help us to learn from it, and help us to apply what we learn this morning to our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On your, your seat, there should be a bulletin, but also on the other side of the bulletin are all the verses that we're going to be looking at this morning. So if you want to use that, uh, if, if that helps, then uh, uh, do feel free uh, this morning. Now, can you imagine receiving a message from the government to tell you that you have 15 minutes until a nuclear missile hits where you live? That is what happened to the residents of Hawaii uh, a week ago, when a government employee pressed the wrong button on their early warning system. And it, it must have been absolutely terrifying to receive a message that you believed was true, which meant that you were probably about to die a terrible death. And then to find out that it wasn't true. I mean, can you just imagine that the kind of emotions that those folks went through for that? I, I don't know how long it took before the problem was solved. And I don't think that I'd want to be that government employee. That American civil servant probably isn't the most popular one uh, at the moment in the U.S. Now, last week, we started studying a book of the Bible called Second Thessalonians, which was a letter that Paul wrote to a church in what is now northern Greece. And something a little bit similar to what happened to the folks in Hawaii happened to these Christians in Thessalonica 2,000 years ago. One of the reasons that Paul needed to write this second letter, he'd already written one, this was his second letter, was because they'd received some kind of false report saying that what the Bible calls the day of the Lord had come. Now the day of the Lord is one of the ways that the Bible refers to the day that, that uh, Jesus will come and judge the world and deal with all of those who throughout history have rejected him. And so these folks in Thessalonica were worried that they'd missed out on Jesus firstly coming to take them, to be with him forever. And if that was true, then it was even more serious than a nuclear missile heading towards them, as, as serious as that is. So Paul had to write this letter partly to assure them that the day of the Lord hadn't come, Jesus hadn't left them behind, and that Jesus was still yet to come. So let's read this next part of 2 Thessalonians, and we're going to see what the Bible teaches about Jesus coming again and how we can be ready for it. So if you've got a Bible and you want to turn to 2 Thessalonians, we're going to read uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Paul writes this, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things, and now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. 
The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Now, before we get into this passage, I need to issue a warning. This is one of the most debated and least probably understood and agreed upon passages in the whole of the Bible. And if you're new to church this morning and new to the Christian faith or, or, or new to reading the Bible, and this is maybe your first or, or, or certainly the first time you've ever read this verse, some of these verses might seem a little bit bizarre. And some of the other verses that we're going to look at this morning and some of the concepts we're going to look at might be a little bit bizarre to you. What I'm going to do this morning is present to you what I believe it teaches, but I want to do that humbly and graciously, because I recognize that this is a difficult passage, and that many godly Christians view this passage differently to the way I do, and that might include you this morning. However, I want to be really, really, really clear here, what all Bible-believing Christians and scholars believe is that this passage, and, and the many, many other passages throughout the Bible that deal with Jesus coming, what we all believe are some central truths, and I'm going to put those up on the screen now. Firstly, so whatever else might be going on around the second coming of Jesus and some of these events we're going to look at this morning, there are some central truths which we all agree on. Firstly, Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming back. Secondly, those who've accepted him as their Lord and as their Savior and have surrendered their life to him, they will be with him forever when he comes back. Thirdly, those who've rejected him, those who've refused to trust in him, refused to accept him as their Lord and Savior, they will be thrown into what the Bible calls the lake of fire, which involves eternal punishment. So those three things are central to the Christian faith, and all Christian or all Bible-believing Christians believe these things, okay? But the Bible also describes lots of other events which go with the second coming of Jesus, And it has to be said that some of them are are difficult to understand because the Bible uses lots of symbolic language when it's describing these events. And because it's symbolic, it's often not always clear how we should interpret those events and understand them. And this passage in 2 Thessalonians involves some of these less clear events. And depending on how literally you interpret the symbolic stuff that's there depends really, I guess, on what you decide they mean. Now, I believe, personally, I believe that the right way to study the Bible is to take a literal approach from Genesis right the way through to Revelation. And if you take that approach, if you take a literal approach, then you will arrive at the view that I'm going to present to you this morning. Now, it might be that you've never heard of any of this stuff before. This might be totally new to you. And that's fine. I'll I'll try and keep it as simple as possible. It might be that you've heard this passage taught differently or, or some of the detail taught differently or that you personally hold to a different position than the one I'm going to present this morning. And that is fine. As long as we all agree that Jesus is coming again, that those who have accepted him will be with him forever, and those that reject him will will face eternity without him being punished. As long as we accept those things, that is what's important. And if after what I've said this morning, you think, I I don't quite agree with Andy, or or I'd, I'd like to know more about why he said this, then I'm more than happy to chat with you afterwards or any other time. Okay, So I'd humbly present that to you. And, and, and please don't, Don't dismiss what I'm saying because you've heard somebody else say something different or because your previous church taught it a little differently. What I'm I'm asking is that we all just humbly come this morning and kind of put ourselves under God's word and and hear what 
God's word is saying to us. So what we're going to do is go through this passage and pick out the key verses kind of chronologically of what Paul is saying and we're going to see how they relate to other Bible verses which teach the same things throughout the Bible as we go along and all the verses are up on the screen and also are going to be uh, are also on your outline as well and what I'm going to try and do is present a brief overview of what I believe the Bible kind of summarizes or, 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 or a kind of summary of what I believe the Bible teaches about the second coming of Jesus and the events that accompany it. Sometimes it's tempting, and, and some Christians do this, to say, well, you know, it, the detailed stuff doesn't really matter. All that really matters is that Jesus is coming again. Lots of people say things like that. And in one sense, that's true. We do need to focus on the stuff that really matters, that, those three points that are up on the screen. But the detail is here for a reason, okay? And it would be very arrogant and foolish to dismiss massive chunks of God's word just because we struggle to understand it. These sections of the Bible might be difficult to understand, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to wrestle with them and understand them and, and hold convictions about what they actually believe. So look at our first verse. Paul says this, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Now, Paul had already taught them about the return of Jesus in some detail when he was with them. We know that because he says so in verse 5 of chapter 2. And then he'd written about it uh, in greater detail or, or, or certainly elaborated on it to some degree in his first letter to them in, in, in chapter 4. So they were expecting Jesus to come and to gather all those that loved him. And, he, and they were expecting then Jesus to take them to be with him forever. But then Paul had heard that they'd had some false reports, some false information saying that what he calls the day of the Lord uh, had come. And the day of the Lord, that was when Jesus would judge the world. And, and they'd heard this false report that the day of the Lord had already come, and they, and they were confused and they were afraid about what was going on. So Paul says this, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day, the day of the Lord, will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. So Paul is saying that some key things have got to happen before the day of the Lord, the day that Jesus comes to judge the world in, in judgment and righteousness. Have, there's some key things that have got to happen before that. And he refers here to the rebellion and to the revealing of what he calls the man of lawlessness or the man of, of sin. But before these two events take place, which are actually part of uh, a bigger series of events, which the Bible calls the Great Tribulation, before these events take place, Jesus will come and take those who love him to be with him. Paul is saying that Jesus will come again, and those who love him and have accepted him as their Lord and Savior will be gathered to him, as he says in verse 1. Those who have already died, their bodies will be raised from the dead. We find this in, in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, and they'll, they'll, they'll join their spirits, which have already gone to be with Jesus, in the air. And those who are still alive, Paul says, will be caught up and gathered up to meet Jesus in the air. And then Jesus will take all his people to be with him forever. Jesus says this in John 14, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. And having taken those that love him and have accepted him to be with him, then there will be a period of seven years, which the Bible calls the Great Tribulation. And it's at the end of this period of seven years that what Paul calls the Day of the Lord will come. Jesus will return again with all those that love him, with the church, and will bring judgment on the earth. So in between Jesus coming and taking the church to be with him, and the day of the Lord, which is this final judgment, there's this period of seven years called the, the Great Tribulation. 
And during the Great Tribulation, there's a whole variety of terrible things happening. And the book of Revelation, if you want to look into this in more detail, goes into great detail about those events. And Paul here highlights two of these events in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. He calls them the rebellion and the revealing of the man of lawlessness. So there's going to be a great rebellion, Paul says, and it will be led by and it will center upon one individual. Someone Paul calls the man of lawlessness or the man of sin. In other words, somebody who is without law, who is opposed to law, law in general, but specifically God's law. He's opposed to everything that is of God. The Bible calls him by several different names in in the different verses, and we're going to see that this morning. He's variously called the beast, he's called the antichrist, and he's called the man of lawlessness here by Paul. And Paul says in this passage that when he's revealed, which of course means he could be alive today, when he's revealed, he says this, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. You can see why he's called the beast and the antichrist and the man of lawlessness. Paul tells us in verse 9 and the book of Revelation tells us in more detail that this man is going to be empowered by Satan. And with Satan's power fully unleashed and, and, and running through him, he will oppose not only the one true God, there is only one true God and, and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, but actually this man is going, to imp- is going to oppose every form of religion. He will demand total worship of himself as God and total allegiance to and of himself. And this man is prophesied repeatedly throughout the Bible in the Old Testament by Jesus and then by Paul here and then John in Revelation as well. Daniel, writing hundreds of years before Jesus was born, uh, says this. He, he has this vision. He has a number of visions. And in this vision, he says, And on a wing of the temple, he, that's this, this individual, was set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out him. So in the temple of Jerusalem, Daniel has this vision of this man in the temple, the beast, setting up an abomination that causes desolation. What does he mean by that? Well, in other words, Paul says he was set up an image of himself in the temple, an, an abomination. And he will demand that people everywhere worship him. Jesus refers to the same thing. Look at what he says. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel. And when we get to the book of Revelation, we read the same thing in a little bit more detail. John says this. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. John is saying somebody that he calls, I haven't got time to look at the details, but someone he calls the false prophet, effectively a, a sort of sidekick of the beast, the man of lawlessness, will set up this image of the beast in the temple. And this image of the beast will be given power to speak. And all those who refuse to worship the image will be killed. The man, the Bible says, if if we look in more detail at Daniel and Revelation, will be the head of a ten-nation confederacy that is a form of the revived Roman Empire. So it will be a group of nations that corresponds to the nations that formed the old Roman Empire. And the beast, or the man of lawlessness, as Paul calls him, will be the leader of this revived Roman Empire. But actually, the whole world will come under his power and and under his authority, and, and he will demand absolute and total allegiance and worship. But as Paul says to the Christian in Thessalonica, he's currently being held back. He's yet to be revealed. And something or someone is preventing him from being revealed. Look at verse 6. 
And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed. The reason he's being held back is because the church is still here on earth. When Jesus comes to take the church to be with him, then, Paul says, this man will be revealed. The secret power behind him is already at work, and we can see that today, can't we, that the secret power of the Antichrist at work in all the lawless stuff that goes on all around us. But the man himself, Paul says, won't be revealed until the church is taken out of the way. You know, the Holy Spirit indwells every single genuine Christian. And as the church is taken away by Jesus when he comes again, so the Holy Spirit's special and unique presence as it's experienced in and through the lives of Christians will there be absent. God himself, God's presence is everywhere, but in his unique presence, in the way that he's present in the, in the life of Christians, it will then be absent. And when the Holy Spirit's special presence in the life of every genuine believer is removed, as the church is taken to be with Jesus, then as Paul says, the lawless one will be revealed. Now, if we skip down to verse 9, we can find a bit more about this man. We've already read a little bit from Revelation about his sidekick, the false prophet. And Paul elaborates a little on this for us. He says this, The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth, and so be saved. So this man of evil, Paul says, will be empowered by Satan himself. And he will display all sorts of miraculous powers that will deceive people. They're real powers, but they're counterfeit in the sense that the power behind them is satanic, and and Satan himself is, is counterfeit. He is the great deceiver, the father of lies. But people will lap this up. They will welcome this evil man, the Bible says, with open arms. They've already rejected the truth about Jesus. They've already refused to be saved when the, when the gospel, the, the message about Jesus was being preached. And now they'll, they, they, will, they will receive their just desserts, Paul says. They'll, they'll get what they deserve. They will get this ruler who will rule them with absolute terror. And because they are those who've rejected the truth of the gospel when the church was here, Paul says that God will allow them to get what they deserve. Look at verse 11. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who've not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. God himself sends a powerful delusion. He allows them to be massively deceived by this personification of evil, the beast who's empowered by Satan. And he does something that deceives them in a massive way. And to get a bit more detail about this, we need to look at Revelation 13 verses 3 to 4. John, in his vision, sees this happen. He says, the dragon, dragon is Satan, the dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon, Satan, because he'd given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? And there are three main characters that feature during the Great Tribulation. There's the dragon which is Satan, there's the beast, and there's the false prophet. And because Satan is the father of lies, the great deceiver, he creates this evil trinity, which is, the, which is kind of a counterfeit for the Holy Trinity. Just as the Holy Trinity is made up of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, so Satan brings into being this evil and false trinity. He tries to, to kind of copy and mirror God the Father. The beast tries to mirror and copy God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the false prophet tries to mirror and copy the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And just as the beast 
uh, sorry, just as, as Jesus himself was revealed, so also the beast is revealed. And just as Jesus died and rose again, so the beast has a kind of counterfeit death and resurrection. He has this fatal wound, John says, which is, which is healed. Now, a fatal wound means you die. He has a fatal wound which is healed. He, he dies and yet lives again. And as Revelation 13 verse 3 says, the whole world was astonished by this and followed the beast. Now, the books of Daniel and Revelation in particular give us a whole load more information about what happens during this seven-year period, the Great Tribulation. Now, I'm just trying to cut, you know, just give you the, the kind of real uh, core details here. But Paul, in this letter, just gives us the briefest details. As always with Paul's letters, it would be so much more helpful, I think, if he just helped us out with a few more details. That would have been nice. But anyway, Paul here just gives us the briefest of details. And don't forget, Paul's already told them all of this stuff when he was with them. He's just reminding them of the key facts that they already knew. But he wants to, to remind everybody reading this letter, and that includes us, that Although this evil trinity will do terrible things during this seven-year period, Jesus will come once more, and he will deal with Satan once and for all. He will deal with the beast and the false prophet. Look at verse 8. Paul says this, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. When Jesus comes to rule and reign, and to bring judgment, the day of the Lord, he will bring an end to this character, to, to, to this man called the beast. And to contrast the power of the beast with the power of Jesus, Paul says Jesus' breath will overthrow the beast. Jesus is so much more powerful than the beast. There's no comparison that just even the breath of Jesus will blast him away and his splendor, Paul says, will destroy him. Daniel tells us the same thing that he saw in his vision of the end times. He says, I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body uh, destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. And Revelation 19 gives us a bit more detail. He says this, John says, but the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs, he deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Jesus wins. That's what you need to take home from this morning, if nothing else. If everything else has confused you and you thought, well, that's wacky, that's weird, maybe it is a little bit. What you need to take home this morning is this, Jesus wins. Jesus will bring God's wrath and his judgment on this evil trinity. And in this verse, John deals with the fate of the, of the beast and the false prophet, and later on he deals with Satan's fate. Satan himself, says John in Revelation, will join the beast and the false prophet in the... In the a lake of fire, which is an eternal lake of fire, and all three will face God's punishment and wrath and, 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 and punishment. Wow, it's, it's, it's some series of events, isn't it? These are phenomenal events yet to happen and will happen, I believe, after Jesus comes to gather the church to him and take the church to be with him forever. And here's a little brief chart just to help sum up what we've said this morning. We're in the church age at the minute in between Jesus' death and resurrection and Jesus coming again, what we sometimes call the rapture. Jesus will come and take us to be with him if we know and love him. And then there's this period of seven years, the great tribulation, during which these two things we looked at this morning will take place. Then Christ will come again and destroy the beast, the false prophet, and Satan, and will come and reign for a thousand years. I haven't got time to go into more detail. We're dealing with this passage, not this kind of wider thing. There's all sorts of other passages in the Bible which deal with these things. and I'm more than happy to chat with you afterwards if you want to look at those this morning. As I've gone through these verses, I've presented them and interpreted them in a literal way, which I believe is the right way, otherwise I would have done it. However, as I've said, 
I know many Christians, godly, godly people that I respect deeply that would interpret this a little bit differently. They, they believe in those three key things, that Jesus is coming, that those who have accepted him will be with him forever, and those who have rejected him will be uh, lost forever. But they perhaps arrive at some different conclusions regarding the details. So whilst I do think that the details, as we've looked at this morning, are important, they wouldn't be in the Bible otherwise, and we can't, just, we can't kind of dismiss this kind of stuff, we can't just wash it away, we, we need to really understand what they teach, and we should dig into this. What we do need to be wary of, at the same time, is focusing on these details at the expense of the main issue, which is this, that Jesus is coming again and that Jesus wins, and that if we know and love him, we'll be with him forever. But if we reject him, we will face God's eternal wrath. Christians throughout time have a history of focusing on secondary and less important issues, often stuff around the second coming, rather than, and and they get sidetracked and and kind of led away from what is really important and focusing on what is really important. And when it comes to the end times, some Christians will spend all their life and all their time trying to work out, you know, who is the beast and when is he coming and this, that and the other. What does this mean, that mean? And, And we should try and dig into the Bible. We should try and understand what it means. But one of the dangers of that is we can get carried away and get led away from staying focused on what it really means for the fact that Jesus is coming again. Because the point is this, Jesus is coming again. And we can either face him as someone who's rejected him, or we can face him when he comes again as someone who has accepted him. The detail is a secondary issue. It's important. We need to look at it. But this is the real kind of core of what really matters. Jesus is coming again. We can face him as someone who's accepted him and surrendered our life to him, or we can face him as someone who's rejected him. And if we face him as someone who's rejected him, then we need to know and understand that the Bible teaches clearly that we will face his eternal wrath and punishment. If we will face him as someone who's accepted him, and perhaps many of us are in that situation today, then we need to think about what does that mean for us. If Jesus is coming back, and if, as I believe, Jesus could come back today, then what is the impact of that? What's the reality of that? The detail, all this kind of stuff is important. But what really matters today is if I'm a follower of Jesus, am I living as if Jesus is coming back today? So that we don't waste our lives pursuing pointless things or even filling our lives with sinful things. But instead we live our lives focused on serving the Lord Jesus. John wrote these words. He said, and now dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. You know, if we love Jesus this morning, don't we want to be living in a way that we won't be ashamed of when Jesus comes again? How terrible it would be. You know, our salvation isn't at risk or isn't in doubt, but when Jesus comes again, how terrible would it be to be doing something that we'd be ashamed of? We don't want to be ashamed before him at his coming. We want to be ready knowing that we're living the kind of life that is pleasing to Jesus. Paul wrote, sorry, Peter wrote these words about the coming of Jesus. He said, so then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless and blameless and at peace with him. When Jesus comes again, we want to be living lives, don't we, that are, are, are spotless and blameless and at peace with him. We don't want to be pursuing sin. We don't want to be wasting our lives on pointless things. So here's a question for you as we finish this morning. All the other stuff, it's interesting, it's important, we need to get into it. But here's the key question. Am I ready to meet Jesus face to face when he comes, when he returns? 
Am I ready? Am I ready to face Jesus when he comes again? If you're not ready, then you need to accept him as your Savior and Lord. And I would urge you to do that this morning. If you have accepted Jesus, but you know that your life is full of stuff that really you wish wasn't there or you know shouldn't be there, or that you just need to focus more on living for Jesus because you know that you've kind of got a little bit sidetracked with other stuff in life, can I urge you to make that change today? Let's bow our heads and just for a few moments reflect on this question. What changes, if Jesus is coming back today, if Jesus could come back today, because the Bible says that Jesus will come back, in the light of those truths, what kind of changes do I need to make in response to the fact that Jesus is coming again? Father, help us to be ready when the Lord Jesus comes again. Pray that every person here will be ready to meet Jesus. Thank you too for the encouragement that Jesus is coming again. Lord Jesus, that you win. We praise you. We thank you that all sin will be gone. All evil will be finished. We'll be with you forever. If we know and love you. We long for that day and we say along with the Apostle John, even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen.